Welcome to Kankakee Podcast, where we talk about the people and places of Kankakee County. I'm Jake Lamore, and I'm pleased to welcome someone who helps hardworking moms in Kankakee County go from anxious to energized. Sarah Falk, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. I love how that is trademarked, too. You have that. (laughs) Don't take it from me. That's why, you know, it's so fun. When I was doing the the prep work for this episode and I went to your website and I saw that little TM right next to that sentence I just read off, I said, well, I got to use that now. She's got it trademarked, so it must be important, you know. Yes. So, um, which I love, though, anxious to energize. That's that's great. That really kind of summarizes, obviously, what you do. But... We'll get to all the anxiety and anxiousness, but first, I, I like to always start from the very beginning. Where does life begin for Sarah Falk? In Sheboygan, Michigan. Sheboygan. Oh. Not to be confused with Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I always thought that was interesting yes. that there's the Sheboygan, Michigan, and Wisconsin. I forgot that. That's right. Sheboygan just, with a C. Is the other one spelt with a... With an S. It is. Mm-hmm. And that is a very lovely trip if you want to take a nice car ride from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, along the coast to Sheboygan, Michigan. So Sheboygan, Michigan is way up there too, right? Way up there. Is it in the UP? It is is not. Is it just like... It's northern lower peninsula. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. is your family just originally from there? Yes. Um, Yes. They lived there for a long time. Yes. That kind of thing. So how in, how in the world did you end up down here in Kankakee County? Long story short. Well, I like long stories, too. Okay. So. <laughs> well, if you want to make it a long story, I'm sure, good for that. Sure. Well, I went to undergrad in um, at Greenville College in Greenville, Illinois. So I had been Greenville Greenville is um, just off of Route 70 on your way to St. Louis. Okay, so that's down there. So it's down. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Up and then we're down. Right. And so um, after undergrad, I wanted a bigger city because Greenville is very small and went to Michigan State. And thought, okay, I conquered East Lansing pretty quickly. I found my way around. I got to know a lot of people. I love people. I love big places and big crowds. I'm very extroverted that way. And so I thought, well, what better place, number one, to be around a lot of people, and number two, maybe to find a husband. Oh, Um, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Then Chicago. So... I came to Chicago and was working and living here and actually did meet my husband, but actually met him 
through a friend living in Kankakee, and he was living in Kankakee. So Your husband is from Kankakee. He's from, no, he's from Massachusetts. Oh. <laughs> I, love, I love where this is going. Right? Uh, no, he's from like the greater Boston area. When he had graduated and was looking for a teaching job, there were like two um, high school social studies positions available in the USA. <laughs> And one of them was at St. Anne. And so he moved there and my friend introduced us and the rest is Yeah, history. probably there's not many of those positions open because usually when someone teaches high school history or social studies, they're usually there forever until they <laughs> retire. Right. So when you went to Chicago, where were you at in the city and how long were you there for? South Side. Southside South Side Pride. Okay. Um, I lived in Hyde Park for the first three years. And then the last year I was in the city, I lived in Bridgeport. And that's Southside as well. Yeah. Southside as well. My girl, girlfriend's family is kind of from that area. Okay. I believe Bridgeport somewhere yep. in there. 31st in Halstead. Okay. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And then, yep. so your mutual friend that was from Kankakee County is mm -hmm. how you guys got linked up. And then yeah. would you just come down to yeah, the we would, Kankakee Yeah, we would area? meet in different places. So okay. I would come to Kankakee sometimes. He would come to the city. And I worked in Homewood, so he would come to Homewood after I got so, off work. Sort of a halfway. Halfway, kind <laughs> sort of. Sort of, yeah. yeah. We didn't date very long. We, from the time we met to the time we were married was nine months. So wow, that isn't long. And long. you're still together? Yeah, 16, wow. 16 years. Oh, congratulations. Mm -hmm. That's Thank incredible. You. Yeah. Wow. I waited a long time for the right one, though. So that should be noted. Okay. <laughs> well, and I mean, sometimes it just happens. Right. It's different for everyone. It's different for everyone. And mm -hmm. that's always something we have to remind ourselves. That's because right. sometimes a person doesn't get... Uh, well, I guess that's kind of what you just said, though. You mm -hmm. waited a long time for the right one. You mm -hmm. knew when you were looking for. You knew who you wanted to be with. Yeah. So I suppose that makes sense on why it was so quick when you did meet your husband, mm -hmm. it was like, oh, okay, yep, this is the one, let's do yeah. it, that kind of thing. So. Well, when I was 19 and first wanted to be married, my husband was only 12. So I had to wait for him to <laughs> grow up too. And then, you know, so not only was I ready, but he was ready. <laughs> so you married younger. I did. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's funny. Well, of course, yeah. you didn't know him when he was 12. No, though. no, no, no. <laughs> no. Let's get that uh, That's right. That misconception out of there. Yes, please. <laughs> Gosh, that's funny. Yeah. So do you get married and then what? Got married, moved to Mantino, and we Are you still in Mantino? We are not. Okay. No. Kankakee. Yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. awesome. Mm -hmm. I was working for for a cancer support center what, when we met and after we got married. And about a month into that marriage, I was my I was having panic attacks before we got married. But a month after we got married, it hit so hard. And I was at a point where I could not even leave my house. 
Now, were these panic attacks being triggered by anything or were you just having them? Because I know some people, it's either one or the other, right? They're just randomly having these for no reasons. And that's more of a, I guess, a medical thing at that point, right? What or- I would argue is we we allow stress to build up. And so oftentimes it is triggered by something, but we just haven't identified it yet. And so for me, I was in extreme denial about what was triggering my panic attacks because, well, something you need to know about me is I'm a four-time cancer survivor. So I had cancer the first time when I was 17 and a senior in high school. So I was in the hospital three weeks out of every four, four and a half hours away from home. It was a dire and traumatic experience for me. I did very well in treatment, as in my cancer responded well to the treatment. And I had major surgery during that time as well. So I have a titanium rod in my left leg because the bone cancer was in the femur. So that's what you had was bone cancer at 17. At 17. Yeah. What was going on when you early on before you got the diagnosis? What what kind of symptoms were you? So I was an athlete. Um, I actually had just found my love for sports or like specifically running my junior year of high school. And so I was in track. And instead of times getting better, they were getting worse. And I was finding that after any race, my knee was very swollen and tight and feverish. And I would go to the doctor and they wouldn't take an x-ray or anything. They would just feel it and say, oh, it's probably a sports injury. You have to take it easy. And I'm like, take it easy. If you're not telling me anything's broken or pulled or strained or whatever, I'm going to keep running because I want my time just to get better. But it, nothing I did got better. <laughs> so they would just kind of give a general blanket statement saying, yes. oh, it's just a sports, sports injury. injury. But then my question would be, okay, what sports injury? What right. did I injure? What did I injure, though? <laughs> right, right. What's what's injured in, in this knee I have? Yes. So finally, after my junior year, I went to a summer camp for creative writing. And one of the extracurricular things we did there was run a cross-country course. And I loved it. It was fantastic, but my knee was hurting. And by the end of this, I can't even explain this to you other than my body, like my soul knew before my brain knew that there was something very wrong. And I was weeping by the end of this run, like something is wrong with me. And so I went back to the dorms and I called my parents and I said, when I get home, I need to see an orthopedic surgeon. There is something wrong with my knee. 17 years old, how I knew to ask for these things, I don't know. (laughs) But it was like at that point. (laughs) I would say one, you're very smart. And two, (laughs) when there's something wrong with your body, if you're in, your soul knows. If, right. If you're in tune with your body, you know when mm-hmm. something is just not right. Right. Whether you get it checked out and it turns out, okay, you're fine. There's nothing majorly wrong with you. It's like, okay, well, at least I checked it out. Right. 
But, but there was. I mean, uh, yeah, but there was. And yeah. it's very strange. That's something you don't hear of a 17-year-old having mm-hmm. a trouble with her knee just being inflamed, even mm-hmm. though there wasn't, you know, it's not like someone kicked your knee or yeah, there was s- no... some type of thing like that. Mm-hmm. So you go home from camp, and is that when you see the orthopedic surgeon then? Yes. Okay. And then there was a slew of tests after seeing him because he took an x-ray, and that day, I mean, he took the x-ray and showed my mom and I because it was just the two of us, and we're thinking, we're not thinking anything. Like, well, now we'll get an answer, and I'll feel better soon. And he says, see this? And he shows us this dark circle in my left femur and says, that's either an infection or a tumor. And my mom's face goes white and she's like a tumor. And I'm still not there. I'm like, oh, whatever. Like I had a friend in band who had an infection in her knee. They drained it. It was no big deal. That's what we're looking at here. Like I, I, that's where my head is. And I'm like, finally, someone knows what to do. But then after having the tests, they said, you need to go and get a biopsy of that thing we're seeing. That, right. <laughs> that to thing. determine what yes. exactly, what, what type of it? growth yes. it is. Yes. So they do the biopsy. They discover it's what? It's osteogenic sarcoma. So bone cancer. And um, do they know what causes that? Is it just genetics? Do you have a, does your family have a history of... No history of bone cancer, no. And I'm kind of a medical anomaly in some ways because um, as time went on, and this is also part of my story, is having some genetic testing after my second cancer diagnosis um, in 2015, we found that I have Lee Fermini syndrome, and no one in my family has it. So usually that's hereditary but because it is a genetic factor. But everyone has TP53 gene, and mine just happens to be mutated, which means it leaves me predisposed to certain kinds of cancer. So that's how they know you're, you've developed these. So that kind of explains that bone cancer at an early age, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, you get the, the biopsy done. I check it out. It's cancer. It's cancer. And are they able to remove? So first you have to have adjuvant treatment, which means you're, you're having chemotherapy to try to kill that tumor, kill the cancer. And then halfway through, they... they um, because it's in a place that they can't just go in there and cut it out. But cutting or... it out doesn't fix the... Like, it doesn't... There's still those cells? It's still, yes, still those okay. cancer cells. They want to try to kill the cancer cells first. And what time frame are we talking here? Like, as far as what year this is going on? This is going to age me. Oh, that's okay. I'm but not I'm, trying to age yeah, you. No, I'm that's just okay. trying to get So, a... 1991 was when I was diagnosed. July 1991. Were you born then? <laughs> I was around. Okay. I was one. You were toddling. I was, I was one year old. Yes, yeah. yes. Yep. I was toddling. <laughs> so, um, yes, 1991, July of 1991, I was diagnosed at uh, Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and then came back to Michigan, but had to drive four and a half hours to Ann Arbor for my treatment at University of Michigan. It was the closest. Yeah, because what, Sheboygan, we didn't really talk about that, but I assume it's small. Very small. Yeah. Very small. So 
you don't even get surgery. You're starting to get chemo. Yeah. At this so point. I have chemo for six months, then surgery. And then what they want to see there when they take the tumor out is they want to see cancer cells, like dead cancer cells. And so they're able to test at that point to see what percentage of response, quote unquote, that tumor had to the treatment. And thankfully, mine was like 99%. So it was mostly dead. So they were able to take that out. But then they want to continue with like a preventative kind of treatment. And so I had six more months of this this treatment. Now for, you know, 1991, I don't know, what is chemo like in 1991? Is it, has it changed much? Is it? uh, I was going to say, you're not going to like to hear this, but it's much like it was when I had it in 2015. That's insane. It is completely insane. So okay, walk us same drugs. Like, yeah, walk it's, it's crazy. Walk us down. What what is chemo like? We all hear about so and so is getting chemotherapy. I mean, yeah. cancer is is a rampant disease yeah. in our society. So someone's always getting chemo. Yeah, and I'm sure there's different types of chemotherapy and things like that. But for Absolutely. you, in 1991, what was it? In 1991, and because I was still considered pediatric. They treat pediatric cancers much more intensively. Oh, I would think the opposite. No. And that's why it was inpatient, because I was getting chemo intravenously for five days. Well, for three days. And then the following two days, you get what they called (laughs) rescue drugs. So they're trying to heal and protect your organs after getting slammed with the chemo. (laughs) Yeah, because chemo just destroys It destroys everything. everything. It's not so targeted, right. It looked like I wasn't in the bed all the time, but I got very sick. And actually, toward the end of my treatment, I was just taking high. They had to give me high doses of anti-nausea, like a pain reliever. And I was really out of it for a lot of the time so that I wasn't just throwing up for five days straight. So. I don't remember a lot of like the end of treatment just because the management of the symptoms was so intense that I just was out of it. So what is that drug then that is chemo? Um, There are a number of drugs. And in 1991, I had a lifetime dosage from 91 to 92 of adriamycin, cisplatin, and methotrexate. And they use methotrexate for a lot of other things. So that one might actually be probably the most recognizable of all of these. But those were the three that I had. Now, some adults will take pills. They can take their chemo in pill form. And so it just depends on the kind of cancer, the stage of the cancer, the age of the patient. And of course, at this time, though, you're still in the pediatric I'm in the age pediatric. group. So that is usually don't hear of an adult being going five, no, five days no. in a row. No, that's intense. No, they don't. Right. And this is administered through a port. Yes. How is okay. And uh-huh. where do, where do they, that's usually like in your in the chest, sh- in your chest. Mm-hmm. So it's a port and then it's liquid, these drugs? That yes. they, how does that? Yeah. So the port is 
It's a metal base with like a rubber round landing pad, let's say. (laughs) And then there's a tube that's attached to that so that when they insert the needle into the landing pad, the liquid drugs can go directly there. And then that tube is placed somewhere around your heart so that it can just immediately just be pumped right into your so your that's, bloodstream. That's the reason so why it, it's there. Real in quick your delivery. Chest. Okay. Yeah. Not in your arm. In your arm, right. it would take a very long time to to get. It where would take it, longer. Yeah. For, yeah. Yeah. So you're saying what? Five days a week? You said for five a, days a week for six months, or was for it six months before the surgery and then six months after? Okay. Well, I guess five months after. Because I started in July and ended in June, so. So when they they administer the chemo, mm-hmm. then what happens? Do you you're just hanging out sick. in the hospital? Yeah. So for if I'm sick, I'm I'm in the bed. But I I mean you're there and you're meeting people and that floor was very busy and at first I was very just angry. And <laughs> did not. Well, you're a teenager. Yes. And this was just, I was like, am I being punished? Is, you know, like, what is happening here? Why is this happening? And so my mom very wisely said, okay, Sarah, you can do this. This year can be like this if, if that's what you want. Or we can do something else. It can be what you make it. And so thankfully, she had that talk with me because um, I very quickly recognized anger takes a lot of energy. And I just didn't want to do that. I didn't want to spend my energy there. Especially when you didn't have that much going through <laughs> right. that, that therapy. <laughs> right. Going through that chemo. Mm-hmm. So very quickly, I was able somehow through journaling and prayer and my mom being so supportive and my community, Sheboygan, Michigan, was amazing to our family. I can't even tell you. I wrote a lot about it, but it just all of the ways that they supported us. So I just turned it around. And so then my mom and I became like the hostesses of the pediatric floor. And so anytime there was a new patient, a new diagnosis, and the nurses would... And this was at would, Mayo Clinic, right? Uh, no, or this Ma- was at um, Mott Children's Hospital mm-hmm, so in Ann Arbor. In Ann Arbor, okay. Yep. So my mom and I would be called in to orient the new patients, and we would give them little tips like when you're on chemo, everything stinks. So we had found just an item that you could put essential oils on. And like if you just carried it with you and kept the essential oil by your face, you know, that that helped with the Why is smells. that? That you, everything stinks. Yeah, I don't know. You don't know the, the reasoning behind it? No, just no. everything. I mean, everything's messed up. Your your taste buds, you know, mm. your hair follicles are dying. So your hair is gone. Oh, and yeah. just like everything is just, ugh. It's just hard. Yeah. It's so hard. Yeah. Hopefully I never find out. Right. Um, That's right. But so you go through the six months of chemo and then it's time for surgery. And Mm -hmm. the reason for the surgery is to what? Just see what's there. They have to remove the tumor. Or now they're they're actually removing the tumor. And at that point, it's much smaller, I assume. That's what they're hoping for. Right. 
Unfortunately, and I don't know why this was back then, and this was the day after my 18th birthday, I go in for surgery and they say, well, here's what we're going to do if we can. And that's drill a hole in your femur, drill a hole in your tibia, put titanium rods in there. We're going to have to do a complete knee replacement and patch up that place, you know, that place where the tumor was and reinforce that. Why a knee replacement? Is it because your whole knee was consumed by the cancer? It was was in the femur, but in the place, I I guess where it was located, it it was impacting the whole joint. So they said, we're gonna, that's what we're going to do. And this was a groundbreaking surgery back in 1992. It's limb salvage surgery. And they said, if we can do it, that's what we'll do. If not, then we'll have to amputate your leg just above the knee, just above where the tumor is, wherever we can get clear margins. So I just turned 18 yesterday, and I'm going into surgery not knowing if I'm coming out with a leg or not. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It was something else, let me tell you. No wonder why your work is from anxious to energized. Yes. I can't imagine the amount of anxiety you went in to that surgery just wondering what you're going to come out with or without. Right. So, okay, but they end up doing that surgery. You have your leg. They're able to do it. They send the tumor away. They let us know like a week later that the tumor was 99% dead. And that is joyous news for us because the higher that percentage, the more unlikely recurrence. So we're very happy. But during the course of this time, and this is why this is so important for my panic attack story. Okay. I had two social workers in the hospital and because they were doing rotations. So the first six months I was there, I had Laura and she was fantastic. And she sat by my bed and talked with me and cried with me and always had some information to share with my mom or, you know, resources that we could tap into for financial support and this kind of thing. And so it was wonderful. She was a wonderful person. And then she rotated out. And I had a second there, a second social worker who I saw twice. She came to my door, did not come into my room, came to my door and said, do you need anything? And my mom and I were like, "Um, uh, who are you? And shouldn't you tell us what we need? Because we really don't know. Like it should be more than, (laughs) yeah, it should just be more than that. So and usually when you, when a person gets asked that question, you know what the answer is going to be. I do it all the time. I say, no, I'm good. Thank you though. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. I'm I'm good. Uh, What do you, especially when you're a cancer patient, what, okay. What? Yeah. Cure my cancer, please. Um, I mean, (laughs) but you can't do that. So. Right. So. I just determined in that moment, like, I am going to be a social worker and I am going to support cancer patients and their families. And I am going to be the good kind. I'm going to be like Laura and just be there with them so they know they're not alone. And so that's what I did. So the the panic attacks then, is that when they started when you were, you know, halfway through 
that first round of of cancer no. and th- no the panic attacks no. it, not when that that second social worker came into light the panic no. attacks weren't starting then can you believe no. it no no okay no so so I know. It, it builds up so you're build up as much uh, I'm building it all you've up you've got wow right. you've got quite a tolerance right then. don't I <laughs> maybe not such a good thing uh, no well it depends on how you look at it right <laughs> right right it's, it's probably a double edged sword so. Getting back to the time, there's just so much. There's so there's much so here. Much. Um, getting My back gosh. to the timeline, though, you know the the surgery with your leg, it's all good, ninety nine percent cancer free. So now, are you done with treatment then at that point, and you're like going through regular life, or what? What I'm happens through, after that? Yeah, I'm going through physical therapy. Okay, of course. yeah. So I I'm in Minnesota. Two weeks after that surgery, and I have to go to physical therapy twice a day and get my knee bending at 90 degrees before they'll let me go home. So this is a, the whole thing is brand new, right? The whole, the whole, the yeah. whole knee. Yeah. So, and it's not just a knee replacement. I love the fact that people who have knee pain, adults, can go in and have a knee replacement and leave pain-free. Like, that's a beautiful thing. That is not what I experienced. And is that because of the rods that you had put in? yes. I mean, drilling into my bone. Yeah. It's because of the rods, because of the knee replacement, and and because of the type of surgery. It wasn't just what they do for adults who have, you know, arthritis or different kinds of pain. It's—no, it was completely different. So I'm there. I'm trying to walk again. I'm trying to bend my knee so I can get home. And then I know that a week after I get home, I have to turn around and go back and start chemo again. So you have to start chemo again after yeah, the after surgery. Yeah, after the surgery. Yeah. And is that just to make sure that it's that's the preventative? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So November eighth was the surgery. I finally get home just before Thanksgiving. And then at just after Thanksgiving, I have to head back and finish. And in June, I finally finished that treatment. So that's June of 92? Yes. So this is pretty much a whole year yes. of your life that's yes. just been sucked away by cancer. Mm-hmm. So I was you, able to to graduate on time and able to walk with my class. So, so you were doing schoolwork when you could? Yes, yes. Pretty much. Yes. They would send you your assignments, your mom would pick them up or whatever was arranged at that time. You graduate high school, you're done with your cancer treatment at this point. How are things looking? What comes next? You go to college? I was against going to college because now I, I felt like my wings were clipped. So junior year of high school, I was into all the things. I mean, I was acting in the plays. I was doing playing athletics. soccer, yeah. running track. I um, traveled. Fun fact. I actually was involved in a creative writing program that was invited by the Soviet Union to come and pilot a program. So we went in 1990. That was March 1991. Our group went to Moscow and we were piloting a program. Well, during that time, the riots were starting there. So here I am traveling the world and doing all these things. And then cancer. 
And so it's like, now I don't want to go anywhere. Now I just want to stay home. I, I've been away for a year in a hospital. Like I would just like to be here for a little while and feel better and feel safe. And I hadn't yet connected the dots on my anxiety. Yeah. Was there a lot of mental health support for your treatment outside of just the social workers? I'm guessing there wasn't. There, I can... there was none. I had none. And it obviously right. anyone would need that. Right. That I had kind of soul support. support. I had an amazing church that I was part of. But that's not the same thing. No, it's not. Right. <laughs> that's not the same thing. No. Yes. I had the physical support and the soul support, but I did not have the mental health support. So it, that was a missing piece that honestly, I didn't realize I even needed until, yes, I went to college. Finally, I decided that fall I will go and I want to um, study psychology because I want to understand. And you wanted to be a social worker still at yes. that point, right? Yes. Okay. So I went to a community college so I could live at home and just drive to school at, during the day and drive back home. Yeah, you know, get your be, gen eds out of the that's way. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Feel safe still. Shout out to Kankakee Community College while we're talking that's about right. community that's college. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, Not that that's KCC, but obviously right. we're still in Michigan at this point. That's right. Still yeah. in Michigan at this point. Yeah. But so after two years there, I didn't quite get an associate's. I still had like two classes that I needed because I just started very part-time because I wasn't even sure I wanted to do it. And then by the time, you know, those two years were up, I was a little short for my associate's. But I had just broken off an engagement. It was not a good relationship there. And so I was feeling finally like, okay, I need to get out of here. Now is the time to go. So I took four years off of school <laughs> and I worked and I traveled. I actually traveled and did work with Youth with a Mission. And so I was trained in Hawaii and then went to India and Thailand for missions and worked in Calcutta with Mother Teresa. At That's amazing. Yeah. That would have been not too... Well, close to her. She died in 1997. Yeah, it was very close to her death. Yeah. Uh, We were there in 1995. Okay. Yes. Yeah, because she went until she couldn't go no more. absolutely. And that was her. I mean, we went, we got to the orphanage at 5 a.m. I mean, the streets of Calcutta are like so quiet. The sun is barely coming up and we're in this little noisy rickshaw getting to this, (laughs) getting to this building. And we go up to the top of the building and she's already there. She's waiting for everyone to like file in. And then finally we come into this mass. We have a mass service first thing in the morning before going to work, getting to work. And then we break and, and we're chatting and she's gone. Like she's working. So she's the first one up, first one ready to go. She takes her time to pray and then she's working. First one. I mean, she was amazing. Did you ever get the opportunity to actually have a 
conversation with her at all or you no. just kind of it was just that that mass and saw her saw her and... was with uh, probably as close to her as I am to you across the table and you know uh, across the room but did not talk with her and in fact I was sick when part of my group went back the day before we left Calcutta they went back to get a picture with her and apparently the story is took some doing because she didn't want to stop for a picture. She's like, you know, she was just so humble and so invested. And so her life was ministry and just. Any picture that so I've amazing. ever seen of her is never a posed picture. No, it's she's always, like in motion. She's always in motion. <laughs> she's always uh Taking a picture of her, she's busy doing her yes. doing her work. You never see yes. a posed picture yes. with her ever. So yeah. I think, yeah, that that goes right along with yep. what I remember. So you get done doing. You did that for four years. These well, different I, mission trips, or I did missions work there, and then I came back home and I worked, and then I served at my local church. And still in Michigan. Still when in you Michigan. Came back home. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then you went to Greenville eventually? Then I went to Greenville, yep. Okay. And after my bachelor's, I I just knew right away I need to get my master's in clinical social work. I just need to go right there. So I got my bachelor's in psychology and religion and then went to Michigan State for my master's in clinical social work. Then you eventually make your way here to Illinois yes. uh, while to Chicago. Yes. Right. Okay, getting back to, I guess this is an ongoing thing, those building up the anxiety into those panic attacks. When did, were those starting to happen yet? Not yet? No, (laughs) not yet. So did you ever, were you seeking any mental health treatment at this point from... No. You were just seeking and learning about it yourself. I was learning, yes. And you thought maybe by doing that, that would help you kind of deal with what you were dealing with? Yeah. Well, like so many of us, I thought I was fine. You know what I mean? Like I was able to function. I could keep up the pace. I thought I was fine. But what happens with stress is it catches up with us. We can't just keep going. Eventually, our body in some way, shape or form is going to say, hey, (laughs) Wake up here. Yeah. Like, take a look at this, please. So when you do move out of Michigan and you move to Chicago, you start working right away at a cancer support center, right? Is that where you... I had to make my way there, but that was my dream job. If I had to draw it up, that was the job I wanted. And when I found that cancer support center before I was employed there... I was like, I want to work there. So I knew about it for two years, but I was working at Community Mental Health Agency and doing group programs with chronically mentally ill patients and just dreaming of the day when I could work at the Cancer Support Center. (laughs) So after two years, I was able to obtain my clinical licensure and finally able to apply for a job at the Cancer Support Center and got it. And so I started working there. And a a little bit around that time, there were some family issues back home that were very distressing. And so I felt 
torn. You know, like I can't be there. I'm here. I've got my dream job. That's exciting. But I, I, it was then that I started having panic attacks. That was the, the icing on the, the yes. cake. Yes. Was the, the family issues happening back home. And starting work at the Cancer Support Center. Sadly. Because it made you think of your own experiences? Correct. It was all cancer all the time. And of course, I mean, that's what I signed up for. That's what I, that was what I wanted. That's why you wanted to be there. You can relate to these people. That's right. But sadly, I could relate to these people. (laughs) And so it was like, that was the catch 22. But you didn't know how to deal with it almost after hours or. It was like PTSD. It was re-triggering. So I would hear a story and I would have that flashback and I would even be in session in a counseling session with a client having panic attacks. It came to a point where I couldn't get through a day without having multiple panic attacks. And even to the point where I was go into another therapist's office and lay on her couch and have her hold my hand because I thought I was dying in that moment. And she's like, I'm going to go get you some water. And I would freak out. Please don't leave me. You know, and so it's like, okay, so now I'm not getting my work done and I'm keeping her from getting her work done. And it was like I had to come to terms. Sadly, after two and a half years there, I had to come to terms with the fact that I could not do all cancer all the time. That was not I did not have the ability to do that. So I at least at that time. At that time, right. And so I, that's when I recognized, okay, I need, I need help. I need support. For those that have never experienced a panic attack, what is a panic attack like? What is it like? It is horrifying. It's terrifying because You literally in that moment, you think you're having a heart attack. You're going to lose consciousness. You think you're going to die. No one knows where you are. You won't be reached. You won't be saved. Yeah, because what's going on in In your body? So what you're feeling is, well, do you want to know what's actually happening? Like, can I do the brain science and everything here? Everything. Just let it all out there. So we had to geek out a little bit here. Let's geek out. Yeah, we need to to get what all the... Everything about panic attacks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll try to encapsulate (laughs) it here. So basically, you have a survival instinct, which is your stress reaction. You may have heard it as a stress response, but in my jargon, in my world, I call it stress reaction because you don't have control over it as you would a response. That's true. That's true. It's a reaction. I get what you're you're saying. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So this stress reaction occurs and we're triggered by a million things. And that's a whole other topic. But that when we are triggered and that stress reaction occurs, then a stress hormone is released in our body, cortisol. So adrenaline, most people are familiar with, but cortisol, not everyone's familiar with. And that's the more hard hitting stress hormone, in my opinion, Because when cortisol is increased in your system, you have an increased heart rate, your blood pressure is increased, and your 
blood sugar is increased. Now, this is great if you're running away from a saber-toothed tiger or have to climb a tree to get away from a bear or are getting ready to attack a, a rival tribe. Like, these are great things. This is great for yeah, you. Yeah, you need that. that that's <laughs> perfect for those moments. That's right. But to go in and sit at your desk at work... You don't need that uh, cortisol so <laughs> and the high blood pressure and the high blood sugar and all that going on. That's right. So then what you're feeling in your body, because you're not utilizing that energy, you're probably you have probably sweaty palms. Maybe you're shaky. You do feel your heart beating out of your chest, which is why you think you're going to have a heart attack. That's right. Many people have stomach issues as well, where it could be one way or another, stomach issues, one direction or the other, or okay. one way or another. <laughs> so you're nauseous. Um, you're nauseous. Your, your stomach's not feeling well. No. Yeah. Your digestive tract, like that is just off. Like everything is, it, it is just not right. <laughs> so this is what you're experiencing when you're having a panic attack coupled with those thoughts that I'm going to die. And because of this intense visceral reaction, you literally think, I'm going to die. So multiple times a day, I'm thinking, I'm going to die. And the whole <laughs> paradox of it was, I was the happiest I'd ever been in my life. And that's had, why you're probably, you just keep, why am I having these? What is going Everything's on? great. I've got this amazing job. I, you're, you're, amazing husband. Amazing husband. And you're just flipping out. And for I'm no, flipping yeah, out. Yeah, like the world is ending. Yes. And one month into my marriage, I have to say, I can't go to work anymore. I have to quit. That's a rough one to throw Whoa. at your at my <laughs> newlywed. New husband. Yeah. <laughs> and... What does a person do to combat a panic attack or what should a person do or not do during a panic attack? So, Both the person that's having one and then a person that's on the outside of the panic attack. Yeah. So honestly, the person with the panic attacks, there's work to be done prior to the panic attack. You can get to the place where you're reduced, you've reduced your panic attacks, and I'm to a place now where I can even fend them off. I can feel it, and then I'm like, wait a second. I, I know what's happening here. I need to, to practice some things here. But also, it's not just about what you're practicing when you're feeling stressed and panicked. In my, what I teach, is that the importance and the power of practices in everyday life. Like, if you don't want to have panic attacks, if you don't want to have high anxiety, then these here are some things you need to do every day, all the time, even if you're feeling great, because you know why you're feeling great? Because you do those things. <laughs> and so for a person who's just starting, though, let's say just starting, and they realize they're having panic attacks, the number one most powerful, most potent thing you can do is practice abdominal breathing all the time, every day, whenever you think of it, as often as you can. And that means breathing in slowly and controlled through your nose, down into your abdomen, like below your belly button. You want to feel your abdomen soften and, and expand. And then as you slowly exhale, you want to feel your abdomen contract. When you're doing that, you're actually stimulating nerves that can activate the relaxation response. And the relaxation response is a response. 
to what you do. It is not a reaction. There's nothing reactionary about relaxation, <laughs> which makes sense, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. But I suppose with, and, and a person's probably asking, well, breathing, that's silly. Why is that going to help me? And is it just because you're taking in those, you're taking in more oxygen? So does that just help slow things down? Absolutely. When is, yes. When you're bringing in more oxygen, it kind of helps things level out. Right. So you're, if you think about like your brain and your body working in, in concert, right, your brain is like it was triggered. So it's like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And your body then the release of the hormones and you're feeling all this stuff. So now one thing is like um, kind of reinforcing it for the other. Right. The body's reinforcing what the brain's thinking and the brain's reinforcing what the body's feeling and et cetera. So. When we take a deep breath and we slow things down, we're slowing down those racing thoughts. We're slowing down our breathing and that heart rate. So we're bringing everything back down into a manageable, functional level. And so your brain's like, oh, okay. Body isn't like freaking out and running away. Body is you know, fine. taking yeah. a nice deep breath. And then body is like, Oh, okay. See, we're we're not, you know, running away in our thoughts. We're okay. So it's like it has those functions, but as well as the physiological functions. I mean, there's brain chemistry that's shifting as you're taking these deep breaths. That cortisol level is coming down, and hopefully, you're activating that relaxation response. And then hydrocholine is being released, and that is going to help bring that cortisol level back into balance. So you left your job? You stopped working? because these, Because the panic attacks you were having, what did you say earlier, five times a day or something more, like that? If not more. And eventually I couldn't go to the grocery store by myself. I couldn't drive a mile without having to pull over to have a panic attack. Because you were just so anxious about doing those things at that point because everything was built up so much? It was all the things and I was not taking care of myself. I was, I had... No practices. So what did you do? So I did quit my job and I gave them two weeks notice, but they said, Sarah, let's be real. <laughs> we love you. We'll miss you. But here's your goodbye lunch. <laughs> you know, like, Aww. yeah, they knew it was too much. They knew. And they were very kind to me. And I loved that job. And I love those people still. And I support them still in all the ways that I can. But at that time, I quit the job. I went to my doctor and said, hey, I'm having panic attacks. And I would like to, you know, go on the lowest dose of Lexapro that I can and start there and see if that helps. And he said, okay, that sounds good. No reason you can't. Let's try it. And he suggested Xanax as well, which is very common that a doctor will prescribe like the long acting anti-anxiety med with kind of the shorter Because Lexapro acting. is the is the short term. Lexapro one. is the long acting. Oh, that's the long acting. And then acting. the Xanax is the shorter oh, okay. acting. Yes. But what I thought in my mind was, listen, I'm learning to work through these panic attacks. I don't want that short acting. I don't want to, number one, I don't want to start relying on it. And number two, I can work through a panic attack quicker than that 
med kicks gonna, in. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I'm I I never filled the script, but so I took Lexapro and I cut out caffeine, gone, just gone, sugar, mostly. Because in our world, that's very hard. Oh, yeah. Very Absolutely. hard. And there are many different names for sugar. <laughs> right. So. Yes. Many different forms of sugar. Correct. So any refined sugar that I could cut out that just obviously baked goods, right? Like, mm-hmm. let's just start there. And I love donuts, so that was really hard <laughs> for me. But so caffeine and sugar were gone. I stopped listening to heavy metal music. Because I'm like, well, it pumps me up. <laughs> what do you call pumped up, Sarah? Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you need calming things. So I kind of switched that up a little bit. It's not that I n- would never, ever listen to it again. It's just, you Not know, all the time. In very small doses. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. So I did that. I created what I call and what I tell my clients refer to as with my clients, um, is an infusion of positivity. Whatever builds you up, whatever is positive, whatever that is, that's what you need to be about. Surround yourself with it. So I had quotes and scriptures posted and I wouldn't watch scary movies or like I was, I was so into, um, Law and Order SVU. Yes, that's oh one my of my gosh. favorite shows. And I yeah. just had to be like, okay, bye, Mariska. <laughs> she's she's so amazing. Oh, I know. I love her. Her and Christopher Maloney. Yes, I, but I just couldn't anymore. I just really couldn't. And then once I had kids, I really couldn't go oh, back to that show. Yeah. Like, that's understandable. Okay, <laughs> yep. So just all of those things, because it's not just about our mental health. It's about our physical health. It's about our spiritual health. Yeah, it's, it's all, it encompasses all of yes, that. Yes, it's the complete package. But did you think cutting out all those things was going to be the cure? Or did you look at your mental state as well and you're like, okay, what's going on there? Because you can cut out all of those things that you just said. Yes. But if you're not acknowledging what's those thoughts right. that are going on in right. your mind. So I went to counseling. Okay. That's right. That was like, that was the bottom line there, right? So I did all the things I could do on my own, but then that was a part that I couldn't do on my own. And so, yes, I I went to counseling and still go to counseling. Sure. And as a counselor, I highly recommend all counselors be in counseling. Go to counseling. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. I've heard that as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. Everyone needs a checkup. That's right. That's right. So at this point, you're peeling back the layers. And what did you kind of discover, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. when you were starting to finally go to therapy? What what did your therapist tell you that was like just eye openers like, oh, my gosh. Well, to be honest, I don't know that I had eye openers directly from therapy. Like there were things I just had to talk about that I had never talked about even though back in 1991, you know, my mom and I made a pact that we weren't going to try to be superwoman for each other, that we were just going to be vulnerable and honest because we needed to go through this together and just be honest about where we were. Um, and so I didn't really hold back or think that I had to act tough or anything. However, those stresses compound. And so I think that it was really good for me to just be able to 
unload some of that in a safe space. But for me, personally, in the work I was doing personally, journaling and just all of those things, I realized these things have to be part of my life all the time. I can't get to that point again and be like, oh, better pick journaling back up or, oh, maybe it's time to go back on Lexapro. Oh, well, you know, no, I don't ever want to get back to that point again. And so I began to recognize that it wasn't just counseling. It wasn't just caffeine. It wasn't just heavy metal music. It was like all of the things that I had allowed to kind of build up in my daily life that I would not be able to continue to practice those things. So I needed to create and develop practices for health and to maintain the serenity and this peace that I was finally getting to. So after a year on Lexapro, I was able to go off of it. After a month out of work, I was able to go back. I mean, very quickly, I was able to like re-engage and re-enter the world. After a month, I was still having panic attacks. But because I had just cold turkey cut so many things that were like stimulating and activating my stress reaction, it really had a powerful impact. So thankfully, I was able to go back to work fairly quickly. Did you go back to the cancer center then? Or did you find a new job at that point, right? Yeah, at that point, right. I went to um, hospice. I was working for hospice. And I know we've only got so much more time left because you've got to pick up your kids soon from school. (laughs) And there's just, we haven't even, we've barely scratched the surface um, on everything that you do. And you are a current therapist and life coach. That's what you do. So, I mean, if someone wants to reach out to you, are you accepting clients and and things like that at this point? How do people get a hold of you? Yes, they can either call me directly. Would you like me to give my phone number? I mean, that's up to you. Or I I know you've got your your website as well. Yes, Uh, you can contact me on my website and uh, meet sarahfalk.com, sarahfenlandfalk.com. You can schedule a time to talk with me through that website, or you can contact me directly by phone, 309-256-4002. That is a secure line, so feel free to leave a message if you need to. Awesome. And then... I mean, anything else you want to add? I mean, like I said, there's so many things we didn't get to. And it's just. Well, and even saying, you know, talking about anxious to energized, we have this energy, this anxious energy. And really, what I teach in coaching so, coaching is a four week program, and it's more intense, more directive, and more focused than, say, therapy, where I lead my clients through these phases of healing their anxiety and going from like anxiety as like this heavy thing to, oh, anxiety, I, I know what this is. I know, I know what to do here and feeling really just energized and empowered, even though, because we're never going to get rid of anxiety. We're not. We're always going to have anxiety. That, that is a God-given survival instinct. So we don't want it to go away. 
But we can learn to heal that overactive anxiety and learn to manage the stress in our lives so that it doesn't get out of hand again. That's actually something I did want to ask you because I feel like this is so important. I know myself as an adult, I'm constantly on the search of the best way to deal with my anxiety and cope with it and things like that. And I know, obviously, I'm not the only one. As you said, we all deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I think a big thing is that what ends up happening is our anxiety gets passed on to our kids. Yes. And then our kids have no idea what to do with it because, A, we either didn't talk to, we as adults talk to our kids about it, or B, we didn't know how to talk about it. So we just didn't say anything or we did address it, but we didn't address it in the right way because again, we had no idea what the heck we were doing with it. So when it comes to anxiety, what should we be teaching our kids about anxiety? I think that's probably what we should leave with because that's a really big one because that's something I always think of too, like with my son, because he has social anxiety and he's only five for crying out loud, but he's got anxiety. He's got social anxiety. So I'm always trying to think of, okay, what should I be teaching him or what should I be helping him with? I know that's a big, question. It is, but but I'm going to, I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to boil it down again. And I'm going to say it's about regulation, right? Because we talked about trying to bring that cortisol level, that stress hormone back into balance and regulation. And it's the same with our emotions. And for kids, everything is very like in the moment, concrete, emotional. And so it's usually pretty high, whatever the emotion is. Elevated. Right. So if we can teach them regulation, which is let them have a name for it, give them a name for it. And even with my adult clients, I'll say, call your anxiety, whatever you want, name it, give it a name. Like, Oh, Hey Fred, I knew that was you. (laughs) Like, thanks for coming by, but you know, there's no emergency here. So um, I'll see you next time, you know, like whatever. So you can give it a name, whatever you want to name it, but then talk about how to, to soothe it. And that deep breathing, you can teach kids in cribs how to take a deep breath and actually babies, if you watch a baby breathe, they are breathing from their abdomen. It's not their chest that rises and falls. It's their belly. Belly, And so they know how to belly breathe. So if you raise your kids on belly breathing, you are doing such a service, such a kind, kind service for them and giving them and equipping them to regulate and to handle emotions. So that's just a real quick Okay. Tip on working with kids. Yeah, and I know that's, once again, just a scratch of the surface. Just a scratch of the surface. But <laughs> yeah. for more information, <laughs> call. There we go. Now it's turned into a com- radio commercial. That's right. Oh, goodness. Well, Sarah, Falk, this has been wonderful. Um, thank you so much for coming by and sharing your story and and uh, all that you do for everyone in Kankakee County. So absolutely. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You're welcome anytime. All right. Thank you once again to Sarah Falk for being on the podcast. And I want to point out that this wasn't even our entire conversation. There's actually a unedited extended version of this episode that you have access to if you are a paying monthly Kankakee Podcast patron. If you go to kankakeepodcast.com 
and you click on the patron tab and you pledge $20 or more per month, you can actually hear the full episode with Sarah Falk sharing the other experiences that she's had with cancer, including her journey with breast cancer and so much more. And that's not the only extended episode that you have access to. There's other episodes of Kankakee Podcast that you can listen to the extended version or the unedited version, but that's if you pledge $20 or more per month. There's also other things included in that tier of being a patron. So you can go to kankakeepodcast.com and check that out. Speaking of patrons, I do want to give a shout out to our patrons, Karen Bishop, Jake Lee, Jesse Arsenal, Dave Barron, Daryl Damper, Samantha Rocknowski, Lake Iverson, Travis Garcia, Jane Bostwick, Dawn Harrison, Simon Topless, Scott Wright, Carrie O'Connell, Jamie Race, Joanne Barry, Anthony Vicelli, Eric Olson, Carl Earps, Jeff and Rosa Carroll, Teague Drenan, Sandy and Steve Twait, and Rose Lucky. And if uh, you want to reach out to Sarah Falk, I did put the link to her website in the show notes of this episode of Kankakee Podcast. I'm Jake Lamore. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please go back and listen to previous episodes if you haven't done so already. Our theme song is written and performed by Lupe Carroll and recorded by Daniel Bishop. Talk with you next time. This river carries on.